Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. For today's episode, we are going to be focusing on differential treatment modalities for cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and whether these have influence on the efficacy of the intervention. Insomnia symptoms, which include difficulties with falling asleep, maintaining sleep, or waking up earlier than desired, are some of the most common sleep complaints. At any given time, it is estimated that upwards of 33% of the general population experience transient insomnia symptoms, with about 10% of the population meeting diagnostic criteria for insomnia disorder. The alarming prevalence of insomnia symptoms and insomnia disorder highlight the need for access to effective clinical care. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is recognized as the frontline treatment option for insomnia. CBTI is focused on identifying and adjusting maladaptive cognitions and behaviors that perpetuate insomnia. A wealth of existing science evidences the remarkable efficacy of CBTI across a variety of individual characteristics. Yet, despite the meritorious efficacy, a major barrier to effective patient care exists access to trained providers. Currently, there is a scarcity of trained CBTI providers to accommodate the sheer magnitude of patients needing care. This problem is often exacerbated for patients who live in rural areas where there is likely less access to a trained provider, with the nearest trained professional sometimes many hours away. Over the recent decades, the emergence of telemedicine practice has helped address issues pertaining to accessibility to care. Patients are now able to receive care for a variety of problems from the comfort of their own home. Importantly, research has shown that CBTI is one such intervention that can be effectively delivered through a telemedicine modality. However, a key question arises. Are there differences in CBTI efficacy when delivered in the traditional face-to-face format versus when delivered over telemedicine? This question is the focus of today's episode, where I digitally sit down with Dr. Todd Arnett from the University of Michigan to discuss his recent publication in the journal Sleep entitled, Telemedicine versus Face-to-Face Delivery of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, a Randomized Controlled Non-Inferiority Trial. Here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Todd Arnett. Dr. Arnett received a Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology from Queen's University before completing both a Master's and PhD in Clinical Psychology at Queen's University. After completing his internship in Clinical Psychology at Brown University, he stayed on as a postdoctoral fellow and junior faculty before moving to his current position at the University of Michigan. Dr. Arnett is currently a professor of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Michigan where he serves as the co-director of the Sleep and Circadian Research Laboratory and director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Program. 
Dr. Arnett has broad clinical expertise in behavioral sleep medicine and has conducted funded research in a variety of areas, most notably in sleep loss effects on health and safety and psychological treatments for sleep disorders in persons experiencing mental health disorders. So without further ado, let's dive into my discussion with Dr. Todd Arnett, unpacking their recent publication entitled Telemedicine versus Face-to-Face Delivery of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, a Randomized Controlled Non-Inferiority Trial. And now for the interview portion of our podcast. Dr. Arnett, it is a pleasure to see you again. Uh, Thank you so very much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss your research. Um, Before we dive into that, how are things in Michigan? Jesse, thank you for inviting me and things in Michigan are good. The weather is getting much better, looking up relative to where it was. And uh, the weather's nice and, and things are good. Thank you. Yeah, true pleasure to have you. Uh, and I imagine we share similar climates, uh, being that I'm in Wisconsin right now. And I will say it looks like I have a sunny day and our long weekend upcoming seemingly has warm weather and uh, it is May, but there's no forecast of snow. So we're doing well. Um, but I digress. Uh, before uh, this uh, interview portion, I oriented the listeners. I provided a brief biography, but I still think it's helpful for them to hear a little bit more about yourself. So we'll throw some of the hard-hitting orientation questions at you first. Um, let's start with this, Dr. Arnett. Can you please tell us a little bit about your journey to where you are now in, in sleep and circadian research? Sure, Jesse, and, and I hope you'll take it easy on me today with the rest of the interview. Um, Never. <laughs> Uh, So my journey in sleep and circadian research really began when I was an undergraduate at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. When I was in my third year of my undergraduate studies in psychology, I took this cool course in sleep. I was taught by this really engaging, entertaining professor. His name was Alistair McLean. And I found myself fascinated both by the subject matter and by lots of the videos I was exposed to of these strange things people did during sleep, you know, shouting out in their sleep, stopping breathing, walking about the room. And so at the end of the course, I approached Dr. McLean to serve as my supervisor for my fourth year undergraduate thesis. And after much, I think, appropriate deliberation, he finally agreed to be my supervisor. So in my fourth year, I conducted my first sleep experiment, which was comparing behavioral and PSG measures of sleep onset. And I successfully defended my undergraduate thesis. After completing my undergrad, then I took a year off and I actually was a sleep technician in the local hospital around Queens in Kingston, Ontario. And then I returned to Queens to participate in the clinical psychology graduate program where I was fortunate enough to work with Dr. McLean again. And then as the last step in my uh, graduate training, as you know, as you're aware, as somebody in clinical psychology, I had to complete a pre-doctoral clinical internship. And I was fortunate enough to land at uh, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Now, Now, I will admit, as a Canadian, I did have to pull out the U.S. map and figure out where Providence, Rhode Island was on the map. But I did locate it. I did find myself there. And I was really immensely fortunate to get incredible clinical training there during my internship. And that's where I was really first exposed to the field of behavioral sleep medicine. I had the good fortune in my first rotation of working with Dr. Don Posner, uh, who actually was the one who taught me initially how to do CBT for insomnia. Don's really such a gifted clinician, a really talented teacher, and he was hugely influential as a mentor for me in my career. 
um, as he has been for so many of my colleagues in behavioral sleep medicine. During my internship year, I also had the good fortune of being exposed to research and mentorship and research by Dr. Mary Karskadden. I think that's a, a name familiar to many of us on this podcast. And she really taught me what it means to really do rigorous science. So to be honest, you know, I, I find myself, even to this day, when I'm grappling with scientific issues in my own work, I'll often think to myself, what would Mary do under these circumstances? Honesty and accuracy, two of the fundamental principles that Mary taught me and taught everybody um, are, are some of the cornerstones of doing good rigorous science. And so she's obviously one of the most influential scientists in the field. And I was really lucky to have I had the chance to be trained by her. And then when I completed my internship, I stayed at Brown first as a postdoc working with Mary. And then I transitioned into a junior faculty position in the Department of Psychiatry there. And I really got to cut my teeth in NIH-funded research for the first time by serving as a project coordinator for an R01-funded study that was conducted by Mark Aloya, who was the principal investigator on the study. I was looking at motivational enhancement therapy for PAP adherence, and uh, we published a big randomized controlled trial in, in sleep in about 2013 or so. And while I was at Brown, Mark was really instrumental in helping me to secure my own PI, my first PI NIH-funded grant which was an R21 to evaluate CBT for insomnia and people who had alcohol use disorder. And then after a few years as junior faculty at Brown, an opportunity came up in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I did not have to pull out the U.S. map to look and see where Ann Arbor or Michigan was located, fortunately. Um, and I packed my family up. I moved to the Midwest. At that time, it was my wife and my 18-month-old daughter. And I came here to take an assistant professor position here at the University of Michigan. I've been here ever since, and after several years of working at this really prestigious and well-resourced institution with really amazing and collaborative sleep medicine colleagues, um, all I have to say is go blue. Well, I do not share the same sentiments as, as you close down there, uh, given my on Wisconsin um, relationships these days. I suppose we have um, some competing uh, beliefs on that front, but I will say we share a lot of similarities in our journey. Um, Dr. Bootson provided a sleep education course for me when I was at the University of Arizona mm. as an undergrad. And it, it was that experience that kind of propelled me to want to learn more. Mm -hmm. I will say it was his obsession with animals and sleep, uh, particularly echidnas, that I think attracted me most. Mm. Uh, but I fell in love. And, and uh, yes, I am on the similar trajectory as a clinical psychologist and I'm approaching the clinical internship phase. Um, and so I, I feel you there. And I must say, I appreciate you going through all those name drops uh, for many reasons, but selfishly, I think it'll give them comfortability to come onto our platform here for the SRS podcast. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing the advertisement and marketing for us. Um, clearly, you're, you're really plugged in and doing a lot with sleep and circadian research. And so I have to ask, in your free time, if you have any, what are you doing when you're not advancing the frontier of sleep and circadian research? Well, when I don't advance the frontier of, of sleep and circadian research, which I try to do every single day of my life, I, I'm actually a huge sports fan. And so I attend all variety of, of University of Michigan athletic events from football to hockey to baseball to women's volleyball and gymnastics. It's really hard to live in Ann Arbor. You may uh, relate to this as, as living in Madison, Wisconsin, a kind of a similar college town. It's hard not to get swept up in the, in the uh, culture of college sports. When I, when I moved, I mentioned I was from Canada. When I moved to the U.S. from Canada several years ago, I initially lived on the East Coast, and I had lots of friends in my program who were just enamored fanatically with college football. And as a Canadian, I didn't understand U.S. college football. We know hockey. We don't know U.S. college football. I couldn't understand it. But then I moved to Ann Arbor, and after about six months of being here, 
I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. This is just in the fabric of the city, and it's it's actually really cool. In addition to that, I actually, um, in addition to watching U of M sports, I have three kids who play competitive sports. Um, and so much of our family time and much of our social activities are centered around those competitive sports activities, especially in the summer times. We travel to various events. And honestly, there's there's nothing more rewarding or enjoyable to me than watching one of my boys play baseball or my daughter play volleyball. It really is, a, you know, an enjoyable and, and tremendous family event that I like to participate in. Outstanding. And and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you just informed me and the listeners that you're an academic who has time for family. Is, is that true? I do my best. It's a, you know, as, as I think most listeners on here are aware, that's a, that's a, an ongoing challenge to keep that balance in play and to, and to manage that effectively. And I think sometimes I do a better job of that than others. Uh, and, uh, but I, I think many people on here can relate to that as being an, an ongoing challenge as somebody who's chosen academics as their, as their career. Yeah, I'm struggling with that right now, setting the boundaries for the family, but it's critically important. And I will say, um, I'm with you living in these college towns. It's impossible to ignore the kind of infectious nature of, of the sports. Um, and, uh, I, I'm reluctant to share, but I'm kind of embarrassed. I've been in Madison, Wisconsin now for 10 years and I've never played ice hockey. Um, I feel like I must address that. Yeah. And, and I didn't want to share that with you, especially with your Canadian, uh, underpinnings, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I see the judgment already. The listeners can't, but I feel it. It's palpable, but yeah. probably warranted. Um, so I, I have some probably hypotheses here is how you might answer, but if you weren't a sleep in circadian researcher, and we'll say, and if you weren't a sleep clinician either, then what would your career have been? Your hypotheses may be supported in that it is, it is a sporting thing. And I thought about it a little bit because I've been doing this work for such a long time. It's hard for me to envision doing something else. I really enjoy the work I do. But I think if I had to do it all over again, I'd love to be a golf pro. You know, I know that a prerequisite to being a golf pro is you actually have to be really good at golf. So I'd have to, I'd, have, I'd need some more lessons to get to the level where I could participate as a golf pro. But I, some of my fondest memories growing up as a, as a teenager and young adult we're playing rounds of golf in the early morning hours when the sun had just come up, the dew is on the ground. You're beautiful in a beautiful environment, uh, surrounded by nature. And for me, there's really nothing as serene or as relaxing as walking around this beautiful golf course with nature all around you, except for the times that people start yelling for that's a little <laughs> disrupting, but otherwise it's a really peaceful environment to be in. And so now, well, maybe the life of a golf pro may not be as relaxing as one of a decided amateur like myself. I think you'd be constantly surrounded by this idyllic environment. And if you're good enough, you get to travel to all these beautiful locations with, again, better weather than we experience a lot of the time in the Midwest. Um, the sport would feed my competitive nature and my, my desire to always be better at things. And then I'd be able to be a teacher too. I'd be able to help people get better at golfing themselves. So all told, I think being a golf pro would be a pretty good gig. I fully support that. You know, you get to travel to some of the most pristine locations. People carry your bags. They bring you food, all the drinks and everything like that. They they walk hundreds of yards to tell you how far you have to hit it next. Um, I would love to be catered to that degree. And I too agree that the meditative nature, the serenity of kind of an afternoon walk with the shadows coming down, it's not much that gets better than that. Um, to my knowledge, there's not a lot of uh, kind of sleep or circadian uh, clinicians assisting golfers yet out of all the sports. Maybe that's how you bridge your uh, pipe dream career with your current career. That's a fantastic idea. 
Fantastic idea. Uh, follow up with Dr. Arnett after if you're an aspiring professional golfer and you're trying to do better at changing time zones and uh, performing your best. Now, uh, Dr. Arnett, before we get into the the real meat and potatoes or the quinoa and berries, however you want to describe it these days, um, I just want to play a little game with you. Okay, And I think everyone's familiar with word association, but being a science-based podcast, we'll call it Keyword association. I know we're really creative. Um, so rules are simple. I'm going to say some words or keywords and um, just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. And for the listeners out there, he hasn't seen this list yet. So here it comes. Here's a word for you. Insomnia. Prevalent. Accessibility to care. Telemedicine. Sleep Research Society. Supportive. Here's a timely one. APSS Sleep 2022. In person. (laughs) That it is. Future of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. Bright. I would agree. Last word, and this will maybe transition us to today's uh, main focus. Inferiority. Study. Well done. You have passed the keyword association portion of this podcast. And uh, now we're just going to transition to the main um, purpose, which is focusing on your research article that you published in Sleep, which is entitled Telemedicine versus Face-to-Face Delivery of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, a Randomized Controlled Non-Inferiority Trial. So to the listeners out there, just as um, kind of an orientation to how we structured this podcast, we're just going to ask Dr. Arnett initially to provide kind of a 10,000 foot view of the investigation before we get more into kind of the granularity and um, deeper dive into the weeds pending time. So, uh, Dr. Arnett, um, can you please discuss what was your impetus or what fueled you to perform this research um, as well as kind of the overall purpose or any sort of hypotheses that you had leading into this investigation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Jesse. So the, 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 the event, the specific event that fueled me to conduct this research was a request for applications that came out by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine Foundation that was seeking projects to compare their proprietary telemedicine system against standard of care for people who had sleep disorders. And at the time, when I read the announcement, I thought it was a great fit for what Maya and our group did because I was already interested in, in ways to disseminate our very effect, highly effective evidence-based treat, sleep treatments to benefit more people who suffered from sleep disorders. Like I'd engaged in a similar study 10 years earlier where I got some institutional money here to conduct a pilot telephone delivered CBT for insomnia study and publish those results in sleep in 2013. So I had both this sort of conceptual interest in conducting this line of work as well as some relevant research that I thought together would make sort of a compelling application, grant application. So we submitted this application in response to the uh, RFA or the, the request for applications. And the goal of the work was specifically to compare the efficacy of CBT for insomnia delivered in two different modalities, telemedicine compared to face-to-face or improving insomnia and daytime functioning. So here we considered face-to-face delivery of CBT to be the gold standard way we deliver that treatment. And our primary hypothesis for this goal of the study was that telemedicine delivered CBT for insomnia would not be inferior to -to face-to-face delivered CBT for insomnia in order to manage insomnia at post-treatment and then a three-month follow-up time point. 
The second interest we had was to compare these two different uh, modalities on therapy-related factors, like how credible participants thought the treatments were, how satisfied they were with the treatments, and how well they developed rapport with the provider. So for this aim, we hypothesized participants would rate the telemedicine-delivered CBT as equally credible and be equally satisfied with that delivery format, but that ratings of therapeutic alliance would actually be higher for the face-to-face version, face-to-face condition. Yeah, I really appreciate that that kind of lead into the study. And as I was preparing for this and reading over the manuscript, I was, you know, largely interested in your primary outcomes, right? I think it's critically important, the cat's out of the bag in some ways at this point, that telemedicine can be effective, but how effective, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the, something we had not rigorously tested yet. Uh, and so I, I'm glad that there was funding for it and that kind of fueled you to do the necessary research. Um, but I was really attracted to the fact that you were concerned about the therapeutic relationship. Uh, because truth be told, uh, I've been educated in my training program that sometimes in psychological interventions, uh, we don't actually know why people get better. And the strongest predictor of success is often that therapeutic relationship or therapeutic alliance. So it'd be critically important to know if any of that was enhanced or degraded based on the different modalities. So I thought that was a great addition and um, kind of a, as we'll go through this, a really well-designed study to kind of thoroughly assess um, what you could in a singular study. Um, So transitioning away from more of kind of the background and intro from the actual study, uh, what sort of design or related methodologies did you use to test these hypotheses? We used a randomized controlled trial design, so a very rigorous research design. Uh, We randomly assigned participants in a one-to-one ratio to receive insomnia either via telemedicine or via face-to-face. The elements of the two treatments were identical. The therapist who delivered the two treatments was the same. The only thing we manipulated was the delivery format. People either got it via telemedicine or or via face-to-face. We took our participants, they came mostly from our existing BSM clinics, our behavioral sleep medicine clinics. We see a a large number of people with insomnia every day in our clinics. We took a few from advertisements and other referrals, but the majority came were were treatment seeking through our clinics. And I think it's important to note that all the recruitment occurred and the study was in fact completed pre-COVID. So in June of 2019, we completed the study. And at that time, knowledge and um, an action around telemedicine was much lower than it is now, of course. And so there was, there was much less familiarity with that particular kind of technology at that point in time. Um, participants in our study were 18 years of age or older. They all had to have an ICSD3 diagnosis of insomnia, and they were otherwise pretty much generally healthy. They couldn't work shifts, and they couldn't have had a previous trial of CBT. Um, and then we delivered both treatments across six sessions that were about 30 to 60 minutes each. in in either format, uh, and it was delivered by a highly experienced behavioral sleep medicine provider who's also one of the co-authors on the study and co-investigators in the project. And then our outcome measures, which were focused primarily, they were primarily self-report measures and focused on sleep and insomnia, daytime functioning, and then the therapy-related measures I mentioned. These were administered before treatment, at the end of treatment, and then at the three-month follow-up time point. Outstanding. And yeah, you mentioned the word randomized and um, obviously a big part of any randomized control trial is that the group comparisons, uh, that they're comparable, the groups themselves. And I thought you did a really nice job in table one of kind of outlining all the different characteristics where these groups could be different and 
largely were comparable. I think there was maybe a statistical difference in uh, annual income or, or something like that. But generally speaking, the ran- randomization process should not have influenced these results in any capacity. Uh, so that's outstanding. You know, I was, I like the word non-inferiority, right? But I really had no idea what it truly meant. Um, I was always kind of exposed that, you know, somewhere between like a six to eight point change on the ISI is meaningful change. Um, and I think that led in some ways to uh, the four point difference, I think, as setting as a non-inferiority. And when I first started reading the manuscript, I was thinking, okay, that must mean that if there's a four point difference on kind of mean change or effect of the intervention, that would be determined as inferior or not, um, kind of in that manner. But as I read more, it wasn't so much focused on mean differences between the interventions, but rather the confidence interval. Could you spend a little bit of time just kind of discussing maybe a little bit about what a non-inferiority trial is and how the confidence interval is utilized rather than sign of a mean comparison? So you're going to put me on the spot to, to describe statistics that would much be better be described by a statistician, but that's, that's okay. So the, the non-inferiority trial, you're essentially trying to make the case you're pitting one treatment against a gold standard treatment. And the goal of the study is to um, evaluate whether this new treatment is not worse than, no worse than the gold standard treatment. Not necessarily better than, but no worse than the gold standard treatment. And you have to set a margin of non-inferiority to determine how you're going to define what's not worse than. Um, and when you set that margin, you pick it based on the existing literature, and we pick four, which is about half half the the score of uh, of a of a good clinically significant change on the insomnia severity index, which is our primary outcome. And then you do look at the means, but the means in relation to where they fall relative to the co- the lowest confidence interval. And if if the the mean score at post-treatment and follow-up of, in our case, the telemedicine group fell within um, the, the 95% confidence interval of the face-to-face condition, then we deemed that condition non-inferior to face-to-face. Well, no statistician needed. Uh, I thought you knocked that out of the park. Uh, no, I guess, pun intended with your sports relationship and the need to go watch your kiddo play some baseball tonight. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that was perfect just to give kind of a, a background to what non-inferiority means in this case. And um, yeah, I thought you did a fantastic job of kind of standardizing the process so that each of the groups got the same type of content. Having the same provider is obviously critical. You know, sometimes in these studies too, it's often a graduate student or something delivering the care. So I thought having the uh, expertise, uh, Dr. Conroy was like a really major strength. You know, obviously there's a limitation there about mm-hmm. translatability and generalizability to someone like myself, who's a training clinician doing uh, telemedicine work. Um, but I still thought there was a, a lot of major strengths there. And, um, the other aspects of audio taping sessions, so you could post hoc review the fidelity of the treatment and also the amount of content covered. I just thought it was a really well-designed study and clearly you put a lot of thought into, all the layers of complexity you wanted to look at here. Um, Generally speaking, and we can dive into kind of the specifics more, I guess we can maybe call it the discussion later on, but generally speaking, um, what did you and your co-authors find in this investigation? So the the top line finding uh, was that telemedicine delivered CBT for insomnia was not inferior. You know, as I say, not inferior, there's not a positive way to say that, was not inferior to gold standard face-to-face delivered CBT for insomnia. 
for improving insomnia severity at post-treatment and follow-up. So we talked about that inferiority margin of four. So just to clarify, that means that the post-treatment and follow-up scores in the telemedicine group could be at most four points higher or worse than the face-to-face group. And if they were, then we deemed it non-inferior. And in fact, at both the post-treatment and follow-up time points, our telemedicine means we're within one point of the face-to-face group. So it was considerably better than that. So that we were able to call it non-inferior as a result. When we looked at remission, which is a, a critically important clinical indicator of treatment success, we found that 45 to 50% of participants in both conditions achieved remission at post-treatment and insomnia. And that's consistent with other in-person CBT randomized trials for insomnia. That was encouraging. Looking at daytime functioning outcomes, we didn't find any difference by conditions in terms of changes in daytime functioning measures, which included things like fatigue, depression and anxiety symptoms, quality of life. But we did find that they improved across the post-treatment and follow-up time points in both conditions. And then in terms of the therapy-related measures, which we've been talking about a little bit, we found participants rated the treatments as equally credible, which makes sense because they're both CBT treatments. It would have been concerning if they didn't. They reported being highly satisfied with both modalities. But contrary to our hypotheses, we actually found that there was no difference in terms of ratings of therapeutic alliance. So in other words, it didn't seem that the telemedicine delivery system hampered people's ability to develop rapport with their provider, which was contrary to our hypotheses. Another interesting finding I thought that emerged was that the telemedicine sessions were on average, even though we had the exact same content that was delivered in both conditions, the telemedicine sessions were on average 10 minutes shorter than the face-to-face sessions. So this modality might benefit from additional efficiencies in terms of treatment delivery. And that is outstanding, I think, in many ways, right? Because we're we're strapped for time uh, in the medical world and jumping between calls uh, and often unable to give patients the times that they fully deserve just because of how the, the days are laid out. And so anything that can bring back some time for a provider, I think, is a big win. And uh, that 10 minutes there, you know, Dr. Arnett, that, that sounds like a, a really thorough progress note that could be written in that time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, uh, efficiencies are good in the clinical workflow. <laughs> uh, so to kind of circle back and summarize, uh, the telemedicine modality wasn't deemed non-inferior to face-to-face. In fact, they both showed really robust um, efficacies in remitting insomnia. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, at post-treatment, it was generally about a negative eight point or an eight point reduction, 8.5 mm-hmm. point reduction in telemedicine and maybe like a nine point reduction in face-to-face. And what I also really appreciate is you did the three month follow-up to show the durability of the effects and yeah, there was a slight reduction in both over time, right? Some some insomnia symptoms creeping back in, but I think it was like 0.3 and 0.4 for both modalities. So both are showing the durability of effects, which I think is great too. Um, and yeah, I, putting in those kind of checks in place as far as the credibility of the intervention, that would have been surprising, uh, especially given the same provider being delivering them. But yeah, how awesome is it that therapeutic alliance is maintained over the digital modality? Um, because truth be told, in my training, COVID provided me the opportunity, I guess, to extend from face-to-face traditional in-room practice to explore this. And personally, I mean, this form of communication just doesn't seem as interpersonally connected. Uh, so I felt that there would be a major degradation on that front. Um, 
I imagine this was a surprise for your team. What can do you have any thoughts on to why this why this happened at all? Well, um, you know, sometimes I have in some ways. I sort of conceptualize CBT for insomnia as more of a psychoeducation based psychotherapy. So from it's more like a, a teaching based psychotherapy, like akin to how we teach people to manage their diabetes, for example, or other chronic medical conditions. So from that perspective, that particular type of therapy, at least the way we deliver it in research settings, maybe therapeutic alliance is not as cr- a critical ingredient as it might be in other psychotherapy settings for improving outcomes. Um, that's 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 one possibility I've I've thought about. But I think that makes a lot of sense, you know, especially given the duration oh. of this uh, intervention. You know, being six sessions, I think. Uh, you know, maybe not getting too deep into uh, past histories of traumas and things like that. Uh, maybe the therapeutic report isn't as important, um, but it gets people coming back yeah. too, right? That's, that's Absolutely. a key ingredient here. There, there may be other factors about that aren't captured that aren't their therapeutic rapport, but that, that are relevant to telemedicine re- receiving telemedicine services that may be beneficial to the recipient. Um, so, th- so people might feel because they're not, they're in on their own, in their home base, for example, in their own home setting that they, they feel a little more on par with the therapist and that may, that may somehow reflect in, in, in no changes in therapeutic alliance, but they, they feel a sense of sort of empowerment because they feel that they're, they're on their own terms. They're, they're receiving the therapy on their own terms, and, and therefore they feel a little more on par with the therapist. And that somehow is reflected in the, in the therapy, the therapy um, alliance ratings. And I know the focus was on the patient perspective yeah. on this yeah. front, right? Um, hand up here um, to all the listeners out there. You can't see it, but hand up here. Um, I'm a human being. uh, And sometimes in my training, you know, I'm not a licensed uh, clinical psychologist, but sometimes in my training, I find myself more susceptible to negative feelings when I've commuted in, you know, had to send off child at 630 in the morning, seven or whatever, uh, commuted into uh, my clinical office, doing telemental health work, and the client no shows, right? That to me is often a bit more uh, challenging to handle in my relationship with clients than per se when we have face-to-face appointments and they no show. I guess there, there seems to be maybe a disbalance of effort, it feels at times. Um, do you think it's merited? Did you consider exploring kind of the effects, uh, differential effects per se from the provider perspective? We didn't, we didn't consider that. I mean, I think that that's, uh, and, and if you look in the literature, I'm not aware, there are a few small scale studies that look at things like burnout in relation to telemedicine delivery of services, particularly now that the, the uptake of telemedicine services has increased so much, but there are very few studies out there that really look at these uh, service delivery from the provider's perspective. I think that's critical for future future studies. The few that have, have looked at it have been a little bit mixed in terms of what they've, what they've found. So I think it's a little bit premature to draw any, any firm, firm conclusions. Most of the studies still look at patient perspectives um, and barriers and facilitators for their uptake of telemedicine services. But as we move forward, I think it's critically important that we consider it from the, from the provider's perspectives. There, there are some, some indications of what uh, make providers satisfied with delivery of telemedicine services, things like adequate administrative support, 
useful workflows in your clinical operation. We talked a little bit about how telemedicine might allow for more efficient workflows, but those things are critically important to have in place in order for providers to be satisfied with uh, their delivery of telemedicine services. And then, you know, insurance reimbursement is always critical to be able to have adequate coverage for providing of those services. So I think, you know, as we move forward, explore these different modalities and our delivery of our sleep medicine services across different modalities, we have to think about including provider perspectives in these dissemination efforts. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, we obviously can't tackle everything with a singular study. And uh, so much work can build off of this one. And, you know, with any study, we're always going to run into limitations in the sample characteristics or whatever it may be. And, um, you know, I, I, we, we do our best to recruit, right. But it doesn't always turn out to be the even split of female to male. It doesn't always turn out to be, um, just a, a good racial distribution. And I think in this study in particular is 80% white individuals. So it doesn't make, um, it doesn't necessarily translate or indicate these findings will necessarily translate neatly to other individual characteristics, um, racially or, or ethnically. Um, so clearly mm-hmm. we can have more work there, but just kind of generally speaking, when thinking about personalized care, right. And the best use of our resources, right. You know, face-to-face is, has its own strengths. Telemental health clearly has a lot of strengths too in telemedicine in general. Um, and clearly is not in, inferior based on these findings, but I imagine some individual characteristics may moderate these effects. Um, just hypothesizing, and maybe this kind of builds some research ideas for those listening. What sort of individual characteristics do you think are maybe better suited for face-to-face and maybe better suited for telemedicine? Yeah. So that's, those are again, important empirical questions as we move forward, something we couldn't address with our relatively small scale study to look at individual factors, as you sort of pointed out. But, but I suspect there are ultimately going to be individual factors that do differentiate people who do better with one format versus another or a mix of the two. I think we're going to maybe at some point talk about integrating these things together and, and, and different kinds of clinical care models. But, um, you know, one of the obvious ones that comes to mind that would favor a, an in-person format would be one's comfort level with technology, broadly speaking. Now, that's, that's changed a lot. If we look back pre-COVID, uh, you probably saw a lot, a lot wider variability or a lot more people who had less comfort in technology than you do now. We've been forced to become increasingly more comfortable with telecommunications. But people who, who really don't have a lot of a high comfort level with technology would, would be better suited for face-to-face. So we often think of older individuals, for example, as being um, as being less amenable to telemedicine delivery of, of services. And there's some data in the, in the literature that suggests that older individuals may be less likely to uptake those services. Um, and so that would be one possible individual factor that would differentiate somebody who's more likely to benefit from face-to-face. You know, having said that, though, I can think of a few people who participate in our trial uh, who are older individuals and perfectly gleeful to be have, to have been assigned to the telemedicine condition. So I think that those are just hypotheses that we need to explore further. Um, on the flip side, I think under-resourced and underserved populations, so so people who are under-resourced and have transportation issues, getting to uh, in-person appointments regularly, they may be able to engage much more comfortably and much more consistently in telemedicine delivery of services. And I think particularly now that telemedicine can be delivered in the home environment, as opposed to an older model where people would often have to travel to different clinical sites in order to receive those telemedicine services. Now we can fire up Zoom, fire up Teams, 
um, and and deliver these these clinical services in the home environment. And people are generally speaking, many people are comfortable with that that kind of approach. So those people who have fewer resources, people who are obviously live in rural settings, are harder to reach, not close to these uh, medical centers. I think they're going to benefit more from um, from telemedicine kinds of visits. And then I think there are probably some clinical characteristics that might pop out as being relevant to in-person versus telemedicine. For example, I think people who have more significant mental health comorbidities or higher acuity of symptoms, more complexity, they, be, they may benefit more from in-person services to sort of tailor their treatments a little more specifically. You know, in our study, nearly half of people did have some co-occurring mental health comorbidity, typically anxiety or depression. But generally speaking, on average, the symptoms were in the mild range. So we weren't really able, we didn't have enough of a variability to be able to look at that particular um, factor and how it might have played a role in treatment outcomes. And then I think there are likely just sort of practical clinical situations, people who I, I sort of alluded to who need more tailoring or individualization of their services or, or who might require medical oversight while you're, you're providing one of our BSM, behavioral sleep medicine interventions. So, for example, if you're working with somebody who's weaning from hypnotic medications in combination with CBT, that person likely would benefit more from being at least in person some of the time to receive some of their care uh, in order to monitor their symptoms a little more closely. So th those are maybe some factors I've considered that might uh, might lend people to prefer or do better with one particular format versus another. Very well thought out. And I, I definitely landed on a lot of those similar themes. You know, I, I struggle with the age one a little bit um, because I, I think you're astutely on point there that one's proficiency with kind of the internet, you know, there's going to be a sufficient level, right? you know, you don't need to be um, Bill Gates here per se, but you just need to be able to turn on a laptop and, and access your email and get to the right link and so on. But not everybody can do that. Right. So mm -hmm. I was, um, when I first thought about age, I was actually thinking of more of an upside down U shape in that mm -hmm. not so appropriate for the younger age ranges because of potentially distractibility uh, and difficulty engaging and certainly not maybe as appropriate for the older age ranges uh, because of the technical limitations on that front. Uh, but then, you know, the relationship, I think it gets a little more complicated because the younger ages are very comfortable with the internet approach now, especially given what they've gone through in some ways, the ringer with COVID and having to go to remote schooling in some ways, yep. they're more socially comfortable with that these days. So it may be more appealing. So I'll have to reconceptualize my, uh, my relationship I see here when it comes to age and the efficacy. But yeah, I certainly think that clinical care. You know, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, also, I think with older individuals, sometimes it, it may, it may be less about their cover with technology and more about what they've been used to historically in terms of receiving their care. And, and they're, and many are just frankly more comfortable with going to see a doctor in person. And that that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that that, that if that works best for, an individual, I think we need to do our best to respect that given public health circumstances being safe for people to be seen in person and, and allow them that, um, that, that modality. Um, I think that's also a consideration for older individuals. They've lived many, many years just receiving care in person. And so that they may just ultimately be more comfortable with that particular format. Yeah. None of this modern day crap. Why, why go through that? Right. Let's get yeah. some real interpersonal yeah. interaction. Um, but I really like this idea of, of, not viewing these as opposing forces, but things that can work together um, and strengthen 
our clinical resources and this notion of potentially a hybrid model. I think you, you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit where in certain scenarios based on a client characteristic where they might be using uh, sedative or hypnotic as along with CBTI, it may be more useful to have some in-person visits uh, that potentially supplement some telemedicine visits. And I really love the fact that telemedicine exists for our domain of clinical work because we get a lens into the sleep environment and the home environment. And when you're Mm -hmm. working with someone constructing a stimulus control therapy plan or whatever may be, we can actually be in the room helping them guide them. And I think that's something that's overlooked when thinking about the strength of telemedicine in the context of sleep per se. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you get a better sense of how far you're going to have to move from your bedroom to your couch in the middle of the night when you're getting out of bed because you're frustrated. Uh, You get a better Mm -hmm. sense of the ambient lighting that's in the home or the external noise that may be disrupting sleep, things like that. Uh, so I think that's that's probably why the telemedicine approach is, is very useful in that sense in, in this um, case. But do you see the field kind of embracing more of a hybrid approach in the in the future where maybe there's like an in-person assessment that's much longer, that's maybe supplemented by a couple um, more frequent telemedicine sessions and then maybe kind of major milestone check-in points like every two months that are face-to-face that are kind of longer? Do you see that as like a viable model going forward? I see it as as potentially a viable model provided it, um, you know, I think we need to start thinking about these creative care models to both optimize patient outcomes, but also to to manage kind of the flow of patients with insomnia and other sleep disorders that we have that are receiving adequate treatment. And, And I think, I think that's a creative way of thinking about how to deliver care is using these different modalities. It could be telemedicine. It could be internet delivered combined with in-person, right? We've got lots of different modalities. Now, these have the beginnings of being efficacious, similar to uh, similar to face or traditional face-to-face, or at least with effect sizes, if not compared directly, that are in the, in the realm of reasonable. And so I think we have to start thinking about these, but we also have to be data-driven. I think we also want to understand what, what is the added value of these Care of these integrated care models that we might use, like what you suggest, combining in-person, longer visit with supplemental te- telemedicine sessions or internet. What's the added value? Do we get better outcomes from the patient's perspective? Does it help the provider with their efficiencies, with their workflows? I think those are important considerations. We want to be data-driven because especially, you know, as, as soon as you, as soon as you you mandate, for example, in-person care, you, you, you limit the reach of our, of our therapies, right? So the benefit, of course, of telemedicine is it has a huge reach. And you can reach people outside of your catchment area to, to all corners of the country or, or internationally, potentially. You know, I think it does lend itself to potentially creative care models like people who on this side of the, the world are caring for people on the other side of the world, you know, because of the time differences. And so I think it opens up those possibilities. Um, but I think we have to do it we don't have to get overly exuberant about it. We have to be thoughtful about our approaches and all of these things and, and really test out these care models and, and what are the added values of these care models with respect to outcomes on both the patient and the provider side. Beautifully articulated. And, uh, you know, you use the word data-driven quite a bit there. And so to all the researchers out there, we, we need to do the science to be data-driven. So there's a lot of meat there for you to chew on for future grants and things like that. And that, that does lead me to, I think, our final question here as it relates to the manuscript. And um, yes, 
cognitive therapy for insomnia, gold standard for insomnia, you know, arguably the most, um, I guess, well-established intervention in the behavioral sleep medicine um, kind of compilation of interventions that we have, but it's not the only one, right? And there's other techniques, whether it's um, desensitization for CPAP use or um, imagery rehearsal therapy or ERRT for, for nightmare disorders and nightmares in general. Um, and of course, there's also group therapy, right? And so generally speaking, um, do you foresee similar kind of non-inferiority translating across other interventions uh, in behavioral sleep medicine, or do you think it's really just going to be specific to insomnia? I think it could translate to others. Again, the studies need to be done. I would just, I'm just speculating, but, uh, and I'm going to go against a little bit of our findings. And I, my, my hypothesis would be that those, that those, those uh, therapies that are rely more on, provider patient rapport are, are going to do better in person than telemedicine. That'd be my starting hypothesis. I mean, I know we hypothesized that in our CBTI study. It didn't necessarily find it, but as I think I said earlier, I sort of conceptualize CBT for insomnia, the way we deliver research as being more of a psychoeducation kind of therapy. So I think maybe therapeutic alliance is less of an important ingredient in the context of ERRT or exposure re, uh, relaxation and, Rescripting therapy. Is that what it's called? Yeah. I always mix it up too. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I'll do it again so we can get it right. Exposure, relaxation, and rescripting therapy, ERRT, where you're discussing uh, trauma-related nightmares and highly personal emotional information. I'd expect that trust and rapport with the provider to be pretty important. And so I think outcomes would be better there for people receiving treatment in person versus telemedicine. That would be my starting hypothesis. You know, you alluded to this before. It's something like CPAP desensitization, for example, which I think may be more like CBTI, rely less on that patient-provider rapport, and I think could, in fact, have some advantages you were alluding to earlier with respect to being in the home environment and being able to actually deliver in vivo exposures in the actual setting that is associated with arousal and anxiety that patient experiences. I think that could be tremendously effective, and I think in that setting, I think you might expect better outcomes and maybe even a faster treatment response um, among those individuals who receive uh, CPAP desensitization via telemedicine compared to face-to-face. Yeah, well said. And um, I will say you even put it in the discussion that there has been um, empirical evidence that the telemedicine delivery for CBT for post-traumatic stress disorder is non-inferior as well to face-to-face. So I think that bodes well for um, extending you know, ERT for nightmare disorder, even though we're engaging with trauma, having people rewrite things and probably um, leading to emotional distress and disruption in some ways, it can be done and it can be done effectively. Um, So that's really encouraging. And um, I will say I haven't ever delivered a face-to-face group, uh, but I've done a couple now telemedicine-based groups. And I can't imagine it's easier doing group therapy over telemedicine to get people engaged in the first place can be hard in a group, right? And to do that over a digital modality seems harder, but that seems to be like the best use of the paucity of trained professionals we have and extending care as much as possible. So maybe that's a, the next area of, of research is to what degree, if any, is group therapy kind of marginalized by the telemedicine modality relative to face-to-face. 
All right. So we've talked a lot about this manuscript and kind of the implications for it. And, and a lot of, you know, things organically came out as far as next steps, but anything outside of what we haven't tangibly covered as far as next steps, Dr. Arnett? You know, we talked, we talked a lot of big, about a lot of big next steps. Uh, and I think those are critically important for advancing the field, but I think, you know, science is also about replication. And I think an incremental next step would be a replication of our finding, our non-inferiority finding. Another study that addresses some of the limitations of our study, which were, and we talked about these as we went along, small sample size, limited diversity of our sample, um, limited severity of comorbidities. And, and I think to this end, I want to acknowledge that another study has been conducted by uh, Dr. Phil Gehrman and his colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania. They carried out the same study as ours at the same time as ours, funded by the same mechanism, and in fact, included many of the same measures we had in our study, and they found virtually the same results. So that's encouraging. We've now got two studies in the literature that indicate that telemedicine delivery of CBT for insomnia is not inferior to face-to-face CBT for insomnia. His sample was recruited from the community, whereas ours was primarily a clinical sample, so that extends the findings a little bit to a broader uh, population. Very nice. So expanding upon one study and uh, actually accomplishing the replication, which is often a challenge in science. Absolutely. Absolutely. But truthfully, Dr. Arnett, I I think we've done a really nice job unpacking this investigation. Um, I really appreciate you and your co-authors for not just performing this incredibly important work, but also um, developing a remarkably sound study. And just reading your literature was was, um, not really that effortful. I think it was very linear and logical. So I really appreciated how it was all kind of disseminated too. And I encourage others to head over to the Sleep Journal to find this investigation. And I'll plug the title again. That would be Telemedicine versus Face-to-Face Delivery of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, a Randomized Controlled Non-Inferiority Trial. And Dr. Todd Arnett is the first author on that paper. Before I do let you go, Dr. Arnett, I save the hardest question for all. Um, you know, so I, you said, take it easy on me. And I was up until this point, truthfully, um, I won't ask you about where listeners can find you, but if they do want to find you, Dr. Arnett prefers the old fashioned phone or email approach. Um, I will not put his phone number into this, uh, universally available podcast. Uh, but our final question for the day, if you were afforded unlimited funding to explore a singular sleep and or circadian research topic then what would you investigate? I would um, eradicate insomnia. That's what I've been, that's what I've dedicated my career to. So I would eradicate, work to eradicate insomnia and help people sleep like my two Labrador retrievers I look at every day. When I'm at home doing work, they can sleep anytime, anywhere, under any conditions. Uh, And if we could get to that point, I think then we'd be able to help people experience the monumental, monumental benefits of sleep health. Oh, I love it. And, you know, the population wide social, economic, psychological, physical health benefits that would be derived if we could grant everyone uh, who's experiencing insomnia some peace uh, would be remarkable. So uh, it sounds like you're living out your your mission as is. uh, And I must thank you for that. And I must thank you on behalf of our listeners in the Sleep Research Society community for coming on to talk to me about your research. So thank you very much, Dr. Arnett. And to those listening, uh, I do believe Dr. Arnett's going to be at the sleep conference. And I think this is being released on the Tuesday of our sleep conference this year. Uh, So 
do what we do around celebrities where we try and take as many pictures with them as possible, harass them. No, uh, grant him his space, allow him to enjoy the conference. But if you have a nice thing to say about this podcast, come up and say hello to Dr. Arnett. I'll be hiding in the bathroom. <laughs> well, a true pleasure, Dr. Arnett. Uh, I'll let you go and enjoy your kiddos baseball game. Thank you again for digitally sitting down with me and have a good one. Jesse, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Be well. You too. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burrows and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.